Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello there. Welcome to today's New Books in Education, one of the podcast channels in New Books Network. This is your host, Peng Fei Zhao, speaking to you from Bloomington, Indiana. Today, I will be talking with Patricia Levy on her new book, Spark. Before we talk about the book, let me first ask you this question. Have you ever read a book and afterwards, you feel like the book is so rich and multifaceted that you could not even to summarize it? Because of the richness and to some degree the ambiguity of the book, anything you say about the book, you feel like you have missed something more. Spark is such a book. It's a novel, but beyond a novel in the sense that it is also about conducting social inquiry, qualitative research, and the philosophic exploration of the meaning of life, or the meaning of meaning itself. It's a very interesting book, and any short summary about it will reduce its profoundness. With that said, I will turn to its author, Patricia Levy. If you have been listening to our program for a while, her name may sound familiar to you. She is a writer of multiple award-winning books, a sociologist by training, and a renowned social researcher in the field of art-based research. Last year, New Books in Education interviewed her on her book, Low-Fat Love Stories. Today, we are very excited to welcome, welcome her back with her new book, Spark. Tisha, thanks for joining me again. Thank you so much for having me. So I remember last year when I interviewed you, my last question was what you were working on at that time. You told me you were at a very productive stage of your writing and you were working on something very special something that stayed very close to your heart. Was that a spark? It was. It was. And I just wasn't ready to share the details yet, but it was a very special labor of love. And yes, that's what I was working on. Well, congratulations on publishing it uh, this year. Thank you so much. So, um, So why do you feel that way? Maybe we can start with you sharing with us a little bit more about your inspiration of writing Spark and, um, you know, just anything you feel like you want to share with our audience about the book. Absolutely. So it's a special project to me for two reasons. The first reason is it combines my two areas of interest in a way that I've never been able to do before. So on the one hand, I'm a sociologist and I specialize in research methodology and particularly qualitative 
research and arts-based research. So I love research methods. I'm a research methods nerd. I know a lot of people don't think that sounds like an exciting topic. I think it's an incredibly exciting topic because research methods allow us to build knowledge about any topic we're interested in. So I'm fascinated by that. And the other thing um, that I do is I'm a novelist. And Prior to Spark, I've written three other novels, and I also wrote a collection of short stories based on interview data, which is the book you and I spoke about last. So I've written a lot of fiction and creative nonfiction in the past. And in the back of my mind, I always wondered, was there any way to combine these two passions, my love for the research process and my love for writing fiction? And honestly, I didn't think there was a way. I thought, you know, how could you ever write a novel about the research process? Like, who would ever want to read that? Um, But then the second reason this book is so special to me is because of the inspiration and how I eventually got the idea and figured out how to do it. Um, A few years ago, I guess about four years ago, I was one of 50 people invited to participate in a seminar on the neuroscience of art hosted by the Salzburg Global Seminar in Austria, which is, you know, it's world-renowned. And receiving that invitation, it was like getting the golden ticket to Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. Um, It was, I just felt like it was the greatest privilege I had ever been given to be invited there. And it did not disappoint. It was an extraordinary experience. So the seminar occurs at the actual Sound of Music house from the film, The Sound of Music, which is in real life, it's a magnificent castle on the water, surrounded by mountains, in Salzburg, Austria. Um, And we were just treated like royalty when we were there. So like I said, I was one of 50 people. We were a mix of neuroscientists, artists, and then a couple of people sort of like myself, journalists or academics and that sort of thing. Um, And while we were there, we had incredible food and we were treated to musical and other artistic performances. And we had lots of leisure time together as well as our structured focus groups all day. Um, And it was just an incredible, incredible experience. And really what I learned the most was about interdisciplinarity in a way that I never had before. I mean, we, we were this unusual group from all corners of the world, from all different disciplines, sort of dropped down into this a spectacular and very unrealistic setting. I mean, that's not what people's normal life is like. Um, And it was just this incredible experience of learning about how to work together across differences, how to work together uh, across cultures, across disciplinary lenses. Um, And it was an incredible honor. And I think we all felt an incredible sense of, you know, privilege to be a part of it. And so while I was there, this idea for a novel inspired by that experience started brewing in my head. And I thought, gee, maybe taking this kind of experience and transforming it into fiction would be the way to write a novel about interdisciplinarity, about the research process and what it means to think like a researcher, um, about problem solving and critical thinking. So over the course of that week, the idea for Spark developed. And after the seminar, uh, my husband was traveling with me and we went to Vienna for a few days and I wrote the entire outline, every character's name, every plot point. I knew the first and the last line of the book. Um, And then I just put it in a drawer 
And I put it in a drawer for, I don't remember how long, certainly over a year. Um, and I just let it kept stewing. And when I had finished other projects and I felt the time was right, I began writing. And so it's a very special book to me because it was inspired by this extraordinary experience. And for me, it sort of preserves the memory of that experience. But it's also a special project to me because I was finally able to merge my two passions for the research process and for fiction. So, Wow, that sounds amazing. I mean, I when I read the book, I was always wondering where you got this inspiration about this um, building, like this amazing building called Crystal Manor. And you put it um, in this setting, which is very extraordinary and relatively isolated, as you said, and realistic. They... Um, in 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 the middle of the mountains of Iceland, probably that if I if my memory is correct. And yes, yes, Mark is set in Iceland. Yes, yes, and I was like, oh, where did she got this get this idea? And now I see <laughs> the trace from your own experience. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's funny. Even one of the people on my publishing team, when we were having a meeting about the book before it had been published, she said, how on earth did you ever get this idea? <laughs> and I told her how I got the idea. But really, it's so funny how life works because I had always wanted to write a novel that somehow tapped into the research process and critical thinking. But I, I thought about it for a decade, but I really didn't ever have a solid idea of how to do it. I thought it was impossible. And then I got this out of the blue, extraordinary gift of this experience and was able to transform it into my work. And that's really what novelists do. I think we take our experiences and the experiences of others, things we observe, and then we sort of put it into a blender with things that are made up, our imagination. And um, it was great luck for me that originally when I had the idea when I was in Austria, I had never been to Iceland. So I didn't know where I was going to set the book. Um, I didn't think it should be set in Austria because that's where I had been. And I thought that was too on the nose um, because Mike, the book is not the Salzburg Global Seminar. Like, just to be clear, the question asked in the book is not what we were asked. It was a very different experience. So it really was just the inspiration for how to do it. So I thought it should be set somewhere else. I wasn't sure where. And then my husband and I went on a vacation to Iceland, which is a place I just always wanted to go because I heard the nature was so extraordinary, which it is. And the second I got there, I said, oh, my goodness, I absolutely have to set Spark in Iceland. Um, and I mean, one of the reasons is that when I was writing the book, I really used symbolism and metaphors a lot. So that was one of the primary ways as a writer that I communicated the ideas and the themes of the book um, was through symbolism and metaphor. And when I saw how incredible the nature in Iceland was um, and how much a part of daily life the outdoors are when you're in Iceland, I thought, gosh, you know, there are a lot of metaphors that could be used here. So, so for example, I put the characters out on excursions of exploring okay. a few of the popular sites in Iceland. Um, so they go to the tectonic plates and they, they go to the Blue Lagoon and that sort of thing. Um, and in each instance, the landscape 
it serves as the basis for metaphors or symbolism that moves the story forward. So just to give an example, there's a scene at the tectonic plates and the protagonist, Peyton, sees human forms in the rocks. Um, and of course, I don't want to give too much away, but for me, when Peyton sees the human forms in the rocks, and then she tells the others to see if they see it as well, really a couple of things are happening. So first, we're seeing an interconnection between the physical and the human worlds. And there is symbolism there that's relevant to the book. And then second, it brings up questions about how people see. What do we see? What do we not see? How do we influence each other in that process? If I see something and point to it, are you more likely to see it? Does that mean it's really there or just that we think it's there? So the scenes that are set in nature in the book, nature is really present. It's not just a backdrop, but it's a part of the content of the book and moving the characters forward on their journey. And so again, it was just extraordinary luck that I happened to go to Iceland when I had started writing the book. And um, it just seemed like the perfect place because the, the nature is so unusual and, and magical, I find. You are giving me so many ideas about how we can proceed from here to talk about the book, but I really want to stick with this idea about metaphor for a while, because I, um, as you said, I also feel like there are so many metaphors in so many places. Um, you tap into something that is really profound, but you are not like when the Patricia Levy writing a textbook, you give us the takeaway points. What you give us is this space and the time, this context to think about the um the ideas you are trying to convey here. So I really like this type of writing and I feel like that's that's a significant part of why we feel like um artworks are so charming to us and i want to stick with it a little bit to um to 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 ask you about how you feel about this kind of um ambivalence uh, i don't know what is the best a better way to say it about the book because it's so different from you know when you talk about the research methods in a very explicit and a very formulaic way. So um, I want. Would you like to say a little bit more? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and thank you so much for your kind words about the style of writing and your comments. I it really means a lot to me, and I really appreciate it. And it is so interesting because in academia and certainly in textbooks like many of the ones I've written. Um, as the author, you are presented as the authority, and the reader is placed in the position of the learner, and it's this very obvious sort of hierarchical relationship, um, and that's just the structure of a lot of academic writing, and it's interesting because we always talk about how we want to promote critical thinking, but I'm not sure if you really think about it that that structure is what would promote critical thinking. I mean, critical thinking means that the reader, the learner, has to insert their own judgments, their own interpretations. So there need to be gaps in the narrative. There need to be there needs to be ambiguity, um, which is it's exactly the reason that I use metaphor metaphors and symbolism so much in this novel. I don't do that in every novel, but in this novel, I felt it was critical 
Um, I mean, really, Spark is meant in part to take on the topic of critical thinking. So the content and the structure of the narrative had to promote critical thinking. So the process of reading the book reinforces its messages. So metaphors, symbolism, and other literary tools force readers to work for it a bit. And so that promotes critical thinking. Um, the layer, is, the, the meaning is layered. It unfolds. It builds. And, you know, sometimes as a writer, you're just creating innuendo and through a metaphor and you know, a reader may or may not pick up on your meeting, or they may interpret it differently. And I think that's okay. I think that's important. I mean, I think that's actually how we get to creative problem solving and critical thinking is not by telling someone what we think the answers are, but by presenting them circumstances and saying, what do you think the questions are? What do you think the answers are? And the book is meant to give them some material to do that. And of course, I have my own interpretations. But I, I think that any reader's interpretations are just as valid as mine. So if I read Spark and I had certain intentions when I was writing certain scenes and you as a reader read it and you interpret those scenes differently, I think both of our interpretations are valid. And I think that's a wonderful thing about fiction and why fiction is so accessible to people because people feel, most people feel like they can pick up a novel and read it if they want to. They don't feel like they need a special degree or special background information. They feel like they are invited to participate. And part of that is because you're not giving people the answers. You're not telling them what to think. You're just creating a set of circumstances that they might lead people down a certain interpretive road, but they might lead them down a different interpretive road. And I think that's wonderful, too. Um, so it, it's a great question, you know, and it's a bigger question, which I know that you realize about sort of academic writing in general um, and this idea that we are often positioned as authors, as authorities, um, as the authority. I mean, I'm constantly called an expert in this, an expert in that. And, you know, it always is a little bit strange to me because I'm not so sure that any of us are really experts per se. I think we learn more as we go. And so there is added value when you have, you know, more cumulative insights and experiences. But I don't know that that means, I don't know if the word expert is really the most truthful word. <laughs> I think that we're all learners and I think we're all interpreting. And I, you know, one of the things the book is meant to show is that people from different backgrounds with different experiences see things differently. And that's fantastic. And so if people see the novel itself in different ways, that's fantastic too. And I have heard from some early readers who have emailed me and people who have written reviews and 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 people like yourself who have been generous enough to interview me about the book. And it's clear to me that people see different things in it. And I think that's wonderful. I mean, that that's your hope as a novelist. And I think as academics, sometimes we're afraid of that, but I would encourage people to embrace that because it's in that ambiguity that other people can engage in a process of discovery with your work. And I think that's really what we're all after as academics. So is there any of the interpretations that you heard from your early readers that really struck me as something you haven't thought of, for example? Um, I haven't. I haven't heard things that I haven't thought of, uh -huh. but I have received certain questions about characters. 
characters that made me think that they had an interpretation that that wasn't what I was thinking. So, for example, um, the protagonist in the book is Peyton Wilde. And so for folks who haven't read the book, um, and she's a sociology professor and she's living in New England in the United States. And she has a very idyllic sort of life. She has, you know, a lovely privileged life in many ways, but she has a sense of fading inspiration. And so one day she receives this out of the blue invitation to be one of 49 individuals um, from around the world to participate in this all expense paid five day seminar in Iceland at the spectacular place called Crystal Manor. Um, and all the speakers are from different places. She's ultimately placed in a group with six other people. Um, so there are a couple of neuroscientists, there's a dancer and so on and so forth. And they are charged with answering one perplexing question. And, and the whole novel unfolds as the group tries to unravel the meaning of this question. And really they are, which they're dumbfounded by, um, but really it sets them each on an individual journey about looking at their own lives, looking at their assumptions, looking about their biases, how they look at others. Um, and it sets them on a journey that's really bigger than them as individuals. So one of the people in her group is a character named Milton, and he is a retired farmer from New England. Um, And I've had a couple of people ask me if he was in the book to represent ageism and that the people, the other people in the group didn't take him seriously because he was older than them. And I thought that was really interesting. And that had not occurred to me. Um, That was not why I had Milton in the group. I mean, the reason I put Milton in the group was because I wanted someone that was firmly outside of academia. I wanted someone with experiential knowledge, someone with lay knowledge, um, because experiential knowledge is incredibly valuable and it's often disregarded and undervalued in the academy. And so Milton ultimately plays a critical role in the book because of his experiential knowledge. But it was interesting to me that other people can read it and think that it was a lesson about ageism. And I think that's fantastic. So it's an example that even though that's not my original intent, so, you know, I, I think that interpretation is just as valid as my interpretation. And I think it's wonderful that people can see these other threads in the book. Um, the thing that I've been asked the most, which it had occurred to me, although it wasn't my intent writing the book, it absolutely occurred to me. And a lot of people have asked about the current political landscape, particularly in the United States. Um, and how much that influenced the book. Um, And I had the idea to write this book. I mean, I know the date that I developed the idea to write the book, and it was was before our current political situation. (laughs) So I had this idea four years ago, so it was before that. So this book would have happened anyway. However, I did write most of the book in the past couple of years. And so the writing process was naturally influenced by the context I was living in. It always is, whether or not we realize it, even if we're writing a textbook, the kind of topic we take on as an example, it's always linked to what's going on in the culture at the time. I mean, that's what makes you think about certain things and prioritize them. So a lot of people have asked if I wrote this as a message about the political divisiveness we see, particularly in the United States, 
Um, and it's true. I mean, these days it seems like people don't really care about the issues or the problems um, at the center of these issues. Um, they just care about flying their party colors. And obviously nothing will get solved that way. Nothing will get solved unless people start to put the problems, contemporary issues at the center of these debates, as opposed to just, you know, what color flag you fly. So I do believe we've lost sight of what matters. And we don't seem to know how to communicate compassionately and respectfully across differences so that we can actually work together and pool our resources to um, create solutions to our many pressing problems. So all of that is real and influenced the writing. However, I did not write the book originally with that intent. It has come to mean that for a lot of people. Even my editor, um, who's a longtime colleague and dear friend, um, said that one of the things she loves about the book most is she feels like it's an antidote to the current political uh, climate we're in. And I think that's wonderful. And I'm glad people also see it that way, even though I actually had the idea before before what we've seen unfold has had happened. Well, what you said is really interesting. And, you know, when I read the book, I also had the same question in my mind. I was like... Is this about, uh, are you trying to speak to our current political situation? Are you trying to convey some, me- deliver some message about, you know, the divisiveness? Um, what, you know, you know, people tend to try to decipher the hidden message. If, yes. Yes. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, if they feel like the text is so, um, it's, it, it's, it's trying to tap into something. Yes. But, yeah, and I, but you know, like for me, that what really struck me when I was reading the book was this sense of community building, or maybe this question you explicitly asked at the very beginning, the first few chapters of the book, how can this group of people with such a wide different uh, cultural um, uh, interdisciplinary backgrounds, uh, uh, wide differences among them. How can they work together? I mean, when I was reading the book, the idea of um, I see the process is just like they how they gradually build their own small community. So, I I don't know. I mean, I I just try to share my own interpretation, and I, 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 I mean, like, I'm thrilled by that. So, thank you. So- so much because I, I mean I truly appreciate that it is one of the things I hope people take from the book when I originally had the idea four years ago it was based on having a career in academia and as you know academia is very hierarchical very hierarchical um, how people are treated from one discipline to another which you see very clearly and who gets funding and who gets awards and who gets published and how people in one department are paid versus how they're paid in a different department um, and we see how the natural sciences for example are treated versus the social sciences versus the arts there are very very clear hierarchies and those hierarchies prevent us from working together effectively 
I think. I think they prevent a lot of cross-pollination and a lot of collaboration and a lot of sense of community and empathy and compassion and all of the things that could make the academic community, I think, much more vibrant, uh, a much happier place for more people to work and more productive because problems of import don't do us the favor of fitting into the disciplinary bounds that we have created. I mean, we as human beings have created these disciplines to structure our work lives, but the real world, the natural world, the social world is not bound to the structure of academia. There is no problem, truly, that is only sociological or only uh, neuroscientific or only, I mean, problems have multiple dimensions. It doesn't matter what the problem is. Take a health problem like cancer, for example, which immediately you think of the health sciences and medicine. And of course, they play fundamental roles. But environmental science has sociology. There are race and gender aspects to disparities in cancer prevention, cancer research, the different kinds of cancer people. It doesn't matter what the problem is, violence, bullying, you know, every problem you can come up with has multiple dimensions. And, you know, so the real world is not structured the way we've structured the academy. So my initial inspiration for writing the book was because of all of the hierarchy I see within the academy that I think is counterproductive. And I think it makes people's lives less happy. It creates less community than we could and should have. And I think it ultimately makes our work less valuable in the real world. Um, You know, we're often so busy as academics fighting with each other um, that we forget about the issues that we actually care about and trying to get that knowledge out in the world and out to the public. So it would be wonderful to see more community building. And that is one of the reasons that I wrote the book. And then as it happened, of course, it mirrors what's been going on um, in the political realm in the last few years. And so, you know, general readers who read the book might relate it more to what's happening in the political realm. An academic reader might read it and relate it more to the structure of the academy. Um, I've had some people who are qualitative researchers who have emailed me and say, oh my God, this is how I feel with my quantitative counterparts. They get the best journals, they get more funding. So we each bring a different lens to how we see it. But I I just truly appreciate the comment because it is one of the messages I most wanted to communicate that it's important and it's beautiful and it's productive to learn to collaborate across differences and that we are greater than the sum of our parts. And if we can put the problem at the center, which is why the book starts with a question and you don't get the answer until the last line of the book, it's because it's about all of us pooling our resources Um, and coming together. And, you know, that takes time. So, you know, in the book, it unfolds over a short period of time. So in real life, the process can take longer. And of course, it can be messier and more complicated, the more people and more disciplines that are involved. But my hope is that how these very different people in the book come to work together over the course of a week, and truly, they do forge a sense of community and friendship, including among those that are most different from one another. Um, And I will say that was actually very much inspired by my experience in Salzburg. 
So this is reality-based. This is not just a fantasy. We can do this if we choose to do it. Um, I'm not going to use anybody's names, but I'm still friends with the people I went to Salzburg with. We're still on a listserv. We email each other as a group of 50 people. Um, I have worked with multiple of those people since, and some of them I consider lifelong friends. So I'm still in touch with some of these people. But I will say a couple of the people that I was most frustrated by when I was there, who I argued with the most or who I found the most argumentative with others, those people who rubbed me the wrong way on day one. By the end of my time in Salzburg, I came to have a deep love and respect for those people. I mean, truly. Um, a deep love and respect from people that on day one, I, I just thought we are never going to be able to work together. So Spark is reality based. I have experienced this. I have seen this. And I'm also a believer, like many novelists are, that anything human beings can imagine, we can actually achieve. And so that's one of the reasons I wrote the book too, because I feel like sometimes people want to think about building community or working together across differences, but they can't even imagine what that might look like. And so Spark gives, you know, just one model of what that might look like, one model of how that might come to be. And my hope is that it will inspire people to realize we really can work together across differences if we put problems at the center um, and stop worrying about all this other stuff. So, so thank you so much for, for the comment. Yeah, I mean, I truly feel that way. And I also, um, I have two follow-up questions I want to ask, um, just uh, inspired by what you just said. I want to ask you how you construct your characters to probe the hierarchies you mentioned just now. Um, I I mean, I think there are, like, it, because it's a, uh, it's this, is the the story is situated is in a very uh, interesting setting. There are some special ways that you use to probe this hierarchy, and I just would love to hear you to say a little bit more about that. And also, um, okay, maybe we can start with this one. <laughs> okay, no, it's a great question. Thank you. Um, I did think a lot about who the characters and what the mix should be because I wanted certain perspectives represented. So first, it was important to me to have the natural sciences represented, the social sciences, the arts and humanities, and also non-academic, so experiential knowledge. So all of that was important because there are such hierarchies in the academy um, in relation to people who occupy those roles. So uh, those had to be there. But then I also thought about gender and race and age and nationality. Where are people from? And these were really important decisions as well um, because you know we see hierarchies and how people are treated, obviously not just with their professional background or education, but also what perspectives do we validate from which countries, from which kinds of people? Um, when you're in a, a mixed group in terms of gender and race, who is listened to? Who is given respect? Who is given the floor? I mean, what are the patterns that happen over time? So, and, and there are a lot of clear patterns that happen that I've witnessed over and over again in the academy and in other walks of life. So, for example, in this group of seven, in addition to having those different professions represented, I also 
decided there should be one woman of color in the group, only one woman of color in that group. So even though among the larger group of 49, there are many people of color, including women of color. And so they're sort of, you know, mentioned in passing um, so that it's clear that the group as a whole is diverse group. In the group that we follow throughout the novel, Peyton's group of seven, it was important to me that there was only one woman of color because I wanted to show how is this woman treated in this context? Um, and how was she treated by everyone? So it's easy in some ways to create a scene where you have, you know, it's, it's a stereotype or it's an archetype, depending on how you look at it, but where you have the white male scientist who is also above her in his career, it's easy to show how he might be devaluing her. But what about the, you know, the female sociologist or the white female artist? Um, what do they not see? I think it's really important to have those difficult conversations, and they are difficult conversations. And so I thought about all of this when I was creating the mix. I thought about their professions, their education, which countries they came from, um, you know, how we value knowledge from different countries. I mean, we have a very, very Western bent um, in much of the world in, in what is considered um, important knowledge and the important discoveries and all of that. And, you know, that's a very limited set of viewpoints. So all of these things became important. And also on some of the minor characters. So some of the characters outside the group of seven, I also thought about, you know, where are they from? What countries are they from? You know, what's their ethnic background? What's their gender? How does it influence the way they see the world, how they see others and how they are seen? So all of those things um, came to bear. And at the end of the day, this was a novel that mostly centered around a group of seven people in dialogue. And that's actually really tricky to do as a novelist. I have to say it was a huge challenge for me. I've never done anything like it before. All of my other novels have like two or three main characters. So you really never have scenes that are more than two or three people. Most of this book was seven people. So that is really tricky tricky to think about because you want to make sure everyone has a distinct voice, everyone has a distinct perspective. I knew it was going to be a short, quick book because that's the kind of book that I like to read. So how do you make these people all distinct so that the reader, you know, is not confused in a short book? And that was tricky. So what I really thought about was the different perspective each character would bring to the table and how that would translate into the way they interact with each other. And I just built each character around that core perspective of how they see the world. Right. That's exactly why I want to ask you this question about the characters. Because I feel like I also have the same feeling like, oh, wow, they have like seven characters in this group. And each character is so different from the rest. And how can you do this? <laughs> yeah, how can you get uh, this person's voice out? Yeah, that's why I um, I feel like it's important to ask the question about the characters. But also I want to ask about your own position. I mean, your own position um, in reality as a sociologist by training, but also to some degree distance a little bit from the academia, like institutionalized academia, and also this character of Peyton. 
uh, she's also the uh, a sociologist, and yep. I've noticed <laughs> she has some like similar backgrounds as you yep. have. Yes. So tell mm-hmm. us a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, the first thing, even when my family read the book, everyone other than my husband, because he knows me too well, everyone else was like, "Oh, you're Peyton." Um, my publisher of over fifteen years. One of my closest friends was like, oh, you're Peyton. Everybody thinks I'm Peyton. But I will just say for the record, every novel I've ever written, everyone asks if I am the protagonist. And all of the protagonists in my novels are very different from each other. So it's a great example of how people see what they think is there. (laughs) Because I can't be all of these people. Now, that said, there are absolutely things that I share with Peyton. Um, There are things I took from my own life. I, I... I wanted to have a social scientist at the table. I pick sociology because it's a discipline I understand well. Um, I also live in New England. I also have what you would consider an idyllic life in the way she does. And I also got an extraordinary invitation out of the blue. Um, so all of those things are true. And also Peyton suffers from anxiety. And that comes up throughout the book that She has more anxiety than others in the group about what if they can't answer the question, what's going to happen? And she's really anxious about it. And I do have anxiety as well. It's gotten better over the course of my life, but I have anxiety, public speaking and sort of, uh, it's interesting because in my role as an author and I often do keynote addresses and that sort of thing, I think people think that I'm an extrovert and people think I'm very outgoing and it's actually not true at all. I'm actually a very shy person and my family knows that. Um, I'm a very, very shy person. And there's a reason I chose a life where I spend 98% of my time alone in my office in sweatpants. (laughs) I'm very happy that way. So I did take all of these things from my life, but my life is also very different from Peyton. So for example, even when I went to Salzburg, I went with my husband. I, you know, I have a family. I have close friends that are very involved in my life. There's a feeling that Peyton has a loneliness in her life, and I don't have that, at least not at this point in my life. Um, And there's also a feeling that Peyton has lost her sense of inspiration or magic and that she used to have it and she lost it along the way. And I don't think I ever lost mine. I really am a person who does believe that the world is magical and we just have to find ways to tap into it. So we we do share things in common, but she is not me. Um, She's, you know, she's she's her own person as well. Uh, But in terms of how... I see myself as the, the author in the book and as the sociologist in the book beyond that character. I look at all of my books as, I mean, everything you write is an expression of the way you see the world. And so whether it's a textbook or a novel, it is absolutely, it comes through your filter. So it's through your perspective. And I bring a sociological perspective to bear on everything. So if I'm going to the movies with my daughter, the way I see interpret a film, I mean, that cannot be uh, extricated from my sociological perspective. Um, the way I look at relationships, um, the way I look at politics, it doesn't matter what it is. And the same holds true for my books, that the way I would write a story is different than perhaps how someone else would write it because I bring my sociological perspective to bear. I'm always thinking about the relationship between the micro and the macro. So what is this individual character experiencing 
thinking or feeling? And what is the larger context that is influencing that? And how are they influencing the larger context they are part of? It's just a part of the way I see the world. And so I feel like my sociological perspective is present in everything from my textbooks to my novels. And hopefully it's not always in a way that people necessarily see. You don't want it to be overt, but it's there. The same way if somebody very religious is writing a novel, um, their, their faith is going to influence that novel in some way. Our, our beliefs and our perspective influence us in innumerable ways. And sometimes it becomes like a second skin. It's like, you know, it's like water to a fish that we don't even realize it, but it's there. And as a sociologist, I'm aware it's there. So I know that my sociological perspective is influencing how I see the world and therefore how I choose to write about it, um, both in explicit and implicit ways. And, and I would say in some parts of, of the book that sociological or that qualitative research training is so foregrounded. Yes. I mean, I, I could immediately tell this when I read the part about how patents started to uh, work on the, uh, the the answers, like how, yes. yeah, how she started yes. to uh, do this sweeping observation of the group of people and how, how, how can you fuse that part, the research part into a novel? I think that's magical. Like, you oh, need to tell us more about that. I mean, it's so kind. I appreciate it so much because that was the challenge for many, many years before I figured out how to do it was how would you write a novel that anyone could read and they wouldn't know they were learning a thing. They would just either enjoy it or not enjoy it, but it would just be a novel. And at the same time, how could that same novel be used in a research methods class or a qualitative research class or a social problems class or an intro to sociology class or many other kinds of courses. And that's what I always wanted to do. And, you know, I couldn't have done it 10 years ago when I first started wondering about it. I had to write other novels first. I had to write novels that were in many ways easier to write, that were less challenging, where I didn't have such a sort of big ask that I wanted to get out of it and where I didn't have so many characters to keep up with. So I had to, in some ways, I guess you'd say, you know, grow my chops as a writer to be able to figure out how to take it on. But I did really want to model what the research process looks like. I mean, my hope is that professors will adopt it in courses and that it will sensitize students to the research process, to get them thinking like a researcher. How does a researcher, um, you know, take notes? How do they borrow ideas from the literature? How do they begin to formulate a problem? How, you know, what does it mean to think like a researcher? Um, you know, there are wonderful quotes about how research is formalized curiosity. And I think that's true. And I think we're all curious. And so anybody can read this book because we're all curious about the world and about life and our own life. But I also wanted to take students and say, hey, you know, there are some tools you can use to sort of shape that curiosity, to, to funnel that curiosity. And then it becomes research. And then you become a researcher. Then you become someone who thinks and looks at the world like a 
researcher. So uh, it was a great challenge to try and weave that into the book. And I'm so grateful for your comments. So thank you. So what are some other challenges? I mean, since you mentioned the word challenge, I just want to uh, ask a little bit more about that. Because uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. The, the biggest challenges for me writing the book, I mean, first, um, like we, we already spoke about, was just seven characters to negotiate. And also to portray them sensitively, which I didn't mention earlier, because the characters are all archetypes. Okay, so there's just no doubt about it. So you have the, you know, the white guy who's a scientist and he's arrogant. Um, there are archetypes, um, and which in some ways archetypes, are, they become stereotypes. And so that can be very, very dangerous. And I, what I wanted to do is challenge stereotypes, not reinforce them. And so I tried very hard to give each character multidimensionality. So for example, you know, without giving away too many details, you know, yes, we have this one guy who's the white scientist guy who um, thinks his perspective is more important than the perspectives of other people, something that we often see in the academy. But at the same time, he, he has other skills. First of all, he's a problem solver. He absolutely looks at things as this is a problem and what is the solution. And that comes in handy in the group in other ways that I'm not going to talk about because I don't want to give it away, but it's actually an important skill. And then, like everybody else, he also has a backstory. He has personal struggles that people in the group might not know anything about. He has reasons for why he behaves the way he behaves. He has reasons for why he prioritizes the way he prioritizes. We all have reasons for that. How do we prioritize things? How do we choose what matters? Um, you know, what is offensive to us? What is it? How do we act in the world? And there's a backstage to all of that. And part of that is stuff that other people don't see. And so I try to portray each character in a sensitive, multidimensional way. Um, so that was one of the challenges to, at the one hand, have these clear archetypes that, you know, most people reading the book will be like, yeah, I know that guy. He's a jerk. Like I had a department meeting with that guy. So on the one hand, you want, you want that reaction from readers. But on the other hand, I wanted to challenge those readers also to see these people in their multiplicity the same way you would want to be seen in your multiplicity or I would want to be seen in mine. So that was a challenge, but it was a wonderful challenge. I mean, it taught me more about compassion. And um, it's something I hope readers take from the book is sort of this lesson about or message about compassion. But as the writer, it's something I also took from the book. Every time I write a novel, I find that I feel more empathy towards other people. Um, and I often write characters that are based on the kinds of people who frustrate me in real life. And by the time I'm done writing the book, I learn to see them in a new lens. And it doesn't mean it's an excuse for all of their behavior. And it doesn't mean that some of their behavior doesn't need to change. But it just means that people are multidimensional. And we are often going through backstage struggles that others know nothing about. And in fact, sometimes those struggles will prompt us to put on a front or a face in public that masks or hides whatever pain or challenges that we're dealing with. So that was a challenge, but it was a, it was a glorious challenge because it helped me develop more compassion for 
other people. Um, ever since I started writing the book, when I am in a group of academics, for example, and someone starts talking and they're, you know, they're bragging about themselves or they're telling you what Ivy League school they went to, or they're like citing themselves in conversation with you or all these kinds of things that I encounter um, when I'm at conferences and that sort of stuff. When people do that, my first thought is like, what is going on in your personal life? Are you happy in your life? Why is that citation so important to you? How could that be the center of your world? It's, you know, I used to just feel frustrated. I used to think, oh God, how long do I have to listen to this jerk? But now I think, you know, there is a person behind this citation. There is a person behind this character who's listing their CV. Um, and what is the insecurity behind this, that this has become so important to them? Or, or are, are they anxious? Do they have anxiety? Or what might it be? Do they have some personal challenge? You know, are they unhappy in their lives in some way? It could be a range of things. But my first thought now, instead of thinking, oh, this person's a jerk, my first thought is, gee, like, I wonder what the backstage here is. And because I think that way, I think at least I try to be kinder to people. So I try to have a kind response. I might let them talk a little bit more about themselves. I might nod along and congratulate them a little bit more when they're congratulating themselves. I might participate a little more and then try and leave them with something that's a kindness in a way that I think five years ago, I would not have. Five years ago, I would have just been offended and wanted to get out of the room. Um, and I probably would have gone and gossiped about them, which now I wouldn't do because now I think about, you know, who is behind the face we see in public. So it was a great challenge. It was a great process of discovery. I hope that the compassion that I learned in the writing process, I hope a little of that lives in the pages and so that it might be transferred in its own way to, to different readers. Definitely. I mean, I, I totally hear you about this, how you can see people differently. If you notice the multiplicity, their rich uh, backgrounded uh, personal stories. And, and I feel like the book really does a great job uh, describing that and showing, at, showing that aspect to us. And I, I really appreciate your distinction between how you can construct an archetype archetype that type of character from uh, reinforcing, uh, say, stereotype. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It was, it was important to me. And it, it's always a struggle, too, because you're in your own head reading something when you're writing it. And to you, the character you know, has depth or you like the character, but other people can interpret it differently. So I did get a lot of feedback during the writing process. And there were even certain scenes where I would ask for specific feedback because it was so important to me that something was portrayed in the right way. So, you know, it is a balance act. If you're drawing on archetypes, you don't want them to be stereotypes. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think the, the novel itself is so <coughs> wonderful. And I wonder, like, how um, this novel or writing this novel changes our revises our depends our what impacts your understanding of research because you have this multiple heads on you and you um i just want to maybe we can yeah yeah say a little bit more about that yeah Uh, absolutely i mean i will say from the the first novel i wrote um which came out uh gosh 
I think around 2010. Um, so I was writing it over 10 years ago. From the time I started writing novels, I feel like I became a better researcher. And I truly, truly mean that. Um, and I, in a few different ways. First of all, when you write in more than one form, you become a better writer. Um, so if you write, it, it doesn't have to be novels or fiction. If you write op-eds or blogs or, you know, if you write in different voices for different audiences, you learn more about writing, you learn more about language, communication, expression. It makes you a better writer. And I think the better writer you become, the clearer thinker you become. These two processes are integrated. So as your writing is clearer, your thinking is clearer. And the process of writing fiction, I found, is an incredible process of discovery where even if you know the first line, the last line, the major plot points, you don't know everything that will unfold. You don't know, you know, all of a sudden you're writing a scene. And this happened dozens of times writing Spark, where I knew what the chapter would be about. I knew what the general scene would be about. But all of a sudden, the dialogue goes somewhere I didn't expect it to go. And a character is saying something I didn't know they would say. And then the conversation goes in a different direction than I anticipated. And then all of a sudden, there's a new metaphor being built in that I hadn't planned. And it's actually in those kinds of moments that the best writing happens, the best parts of the book and, and all my novels, and I'm, I'm sure it's true for other novelists, happen in those moments where you know, it's just flowing and it takes you in unexpected directions and you learn something that you didn't know about a character or how characters interrelate to one another. And so it's an incredible process of discovery. And of course, what are researchers trying to do? They're trying to engage in a process of discovery. They're trying to engage in a process of uh, illuminating um, some topic they're interested in, whatever that is. I mean, they're trying to learn more about something. They're trying to garner new insights about something. And that's what happens when you write a novel. You develop new insights about the topic you're writing about, the themes you're writing about, the people you're writing about, insights that you absolutely would not have developed unless you had written the novel. So to me, the process of becoming a novelist has made me a much better researcher. I see things in more complicated, nuanced ways. I think I'm better to express those things, whether it's in simple terms in a blog or more complicated terms in a nonfiction book. I think that I'm able to express them more clearly in the ways I intend to express them. And I also think it's made me more sensitive to people's perspectives and their multidimensionality. And that's critical to research. I mean, compassion and empathy are critical to research. Uh, valuing other people's perspectives and not prioritizing your own perspective, all of that is absolutely critical to the research process, I think, um, to any research process, certainly qualitative research, but I think any research process. And the process of writing novels has really taught me that. I mean, most of my novels actually include characters that in the beginning, I don't like very much. Um, some of my protagonists in my books are characters that I, I actively disliked when I started writing them. They are someone I would not want to be friends with. And I can tell you, honestly, I love every single character in my book, you know, in, in my imagination, the person who I imagine them to be. I have empathy and love for them, even the ones that in some ways are the most awful. 
are the most hurtful to themselves or to others. I have developed an understanding of why they are, how they are, and how they might become someone different and someone better version of themselves. So it's made me a much, much more compassionate person. Um, And I think that is something that is critical in academia and critical in research. How can we study people's lives without deeply caring about people's lives and everything they bring to the table of the particular topic we're interested in? Um, We need to really care about the totality of people's lives and their well-being and respect their viewpoints and their experiences and how their experiences might be very different from our own. Um, And that doesn't invalidate them. Their experiences are valid and should be dignified and honored in the research process. And so I will say truly that the process of writing novels has brought me much closer to that than, than I've ever been before. Wow. Thanks for sharing that with us. I feel like that's very, um, interesting aspect of combining creative writing with this journey of doing social research and we we don't we don't hear this kind of voice very often in academia so i really appreciate that you share this with us oh it's my pleasure i mean thank you so much and and thank you for asking these questions because i do want to see more of these conversations in academia um you know I mean, we're, we're all in these fields where we care deeply about a certain topic, hence we're doing research on it. Um, supposedly, we care deeply about people, you know, the, the stakeholders um, that are impacted or affected by whatever topic we're studying. Um, but one of the things we don't necessarily learn in all of our education and uh, research experience is how to develop compassion and how to develop empathy and and what the process of discovery looks like and feels like and how to be open to that. And so I think any conversations we can have about compassion and community building and respect for others and learning across differences and valuing other perspectives and experiential knowledge, all of that I think is absolutely critical to becoming the best researchers that we can be and and the most engaged citizens that we can be. So I really appreciate you having this conversation. Yeah, so and and I just feel like the novel can find different audience from different groups. Like the academics can see uh some layers of the novel and a common citizen can see maybe other layers or maybe there are some overlaps among them, but it's, it's just amazing to see how a text can be approached from so many different angles by so many different people. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's a huge compliment because I'm a firm believer in public scholarship and getting your work out to many people. And regardless of people's education or background, people should have access to knowledge and information. Um, and they should be able to engage and participate with that information if they choose to. So it was really important to me that somebody could, you know, pick up the novel and read it on the beach or in an airplane or in their living room chair. While at the same time, I really hope that professors will adopt it in research methods courses, but also in a range of electives. I mean, I know a professor who's using it in a relational communication course and professors who are thinking about it for a range of sociology courses, social problems or introduction to sociology. 
Um, so uh, I know somebody who's thinking about using it for um, a history course that they teach on the American dream and contemporary society. Um, so it, it's, it was the great challenge of this book that anyone could pick it up for pleasure and maybe a little inspiration, but that professors could use it uh, in their classes. And so there is further engagement in the book. There are discussion questions and research and writing activities to make it easier for, for professors to weave it into their courses. And of course, general readers, they can use those questions too, just to think about the book if they want to think about it beyond reading it, or if they want to use it in a book club and sort of have a basis for conversation with others. Well, yeah, thanks. And I was about to bring that up. And I appreciate that you brought the, the, um, the activities and the tasks at the very end of the book. Um, it's, it's, yeah, I, I also feel like those are some very helpful um, ideas for especially those instructors who want to, who may be interested in adopting the text, uh, the book as one of the required books for their courses. And yes, I'll, thank you. I mean, I, I, my hope was also just to make it easier for professors. I mean, you, you know, obviously, how overburdened professors are. And so when you're considering a new book for course adoption, it's so much easier to consider if there's a way to seamlessly fit it into your course. And so I just wanted to provide whatever tools I had. And also just to get professors thinking about, you know, they don't necessarily have to use those questions or activities, but it might jar other ideas for, oh, this is a project we could do based on this book, or this is how I could connect this book to a different book in the course or a different unit in the course. So, you know, anything you can do, I think, to make it easier for professors and also to give people food for thought afterwards. I mean, you know, I love it when there's a piece of art that you enjoy, um, not as a student, but just as a citizen, there's a piece of art you enjoy. And then there's some way of thinking about it or discussing it later on. I mean, for example, sometimes when you go to a Broadway show, they will give you, you know, a playbill that has commentary about the play or about the research that was done or questions you can talk about after. I mean, for example, recently I saw the play American Sun on Broadway, which is an incredible, incredible play that I believe now they're making into a Netflix program or a Netflix presentation of some kind. And really, I mean, it's a play about um, racism and the police in the United States. And that's all I'll say, but it's an incredibly powerful play. But one of the things I appreciated the most was that in the playbill, they gave some information and discussion questions for the audience. So when you leave afterwards, you know, if you're going to have a conversation with your family or you're going out to dinner with your partner or, or whatever it might be, and you want to have a way to think and talk about the really tough, challenging topics in the play, they provided that. Um, and so I love it when a piece of art offers that. And it's not always the case, but across the mediums, there are artists who will provide, you know, sort of, okay, we've given you a lot to think about, but like, now what? Now you're left on your own. And I think it's fine if somebody reads the book and they read the last page of the book and they close the book and they don't need to think about it beyond that, or they can think about it on their own. But for those readers who are thinking about it and they 
need a way to structure what they're thinking or they need a way to talk about it with someone else who read it, I think it's great to provide them some, some tools or ideas to do that. So it's another thing I would encourage other, you know, arts-based researchers to think about when you put your art out in whatever media you might put your art out to think about, are you giving your audience a way to process it afterwards, a way to engage with it afterwards? And they might choose not to, and that's fine, but I think it's great to, to make that available. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me as well. And I think the suggestions for the art-based researchers are also wonderful. Well, we have taken so much time from you today, and... We feel so lucky to have you here to talk about your new book, Spark. But, you know, as always, we have this last question for you, which is what you are working on right now and what we can expect from you in the next uh, few years. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for having me back on the show. I appreciate it so much, and I'm so grateful grateful for your comments and your questions. I, I truly appreciate it. Well, so I have a couple of things. It's such a pleasure to talk with you, truly. Um, I have a, a couple of things I'm working on. I have a large edited book called The Oxford Handbook of Methods for Public Scholarship. And that is coming out this August with Oxford University Press. And gosh, I've been working on it for so long. I forget how long at this point, but it's like six or seven years or something. I mean, it's really a long time. And the reason I took this on is because a lot of researchers want to engage in public scholarship. People talk about public scholarship and the impact of their research more than ever before. A lot of people want to get their findings out to their the communities of interest. Um, but I think that the problem is there's not a lot of instruction on how to do that and how to, from the get-go, build a research project that will enable you to do that. So in the research methods literature, there's very little about how to do public scholarship. So sometimes there's stuff on a particular method. So we might have some information on public ethnography, for example. But there are, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of methods and approaches that researchers use, and all of them can be transformed to, to do public scholarship. So I really wanted to put this out for researchers, professors, novice researchers, students, graduate students, as a, a collection of ways to think about constructing their research so that they can engage with public scholarship and, and also talking about some of the rewards and also the challenges because there are challenges and I think it's important to be honest about them. So that book is coming out in August and I have another novel. Um, I can't tell you the title of it right now, <laughs> but maybe we'll get to talk about it in the future because I'd actually really love to talk to you about it. Um, but it's another novel that I'm, I'm very excited about. It is it is grounded in interview research I have done over the years. Um, it focuses on three women who are trying to pursue their dreams and the challenges um, that women in particular in the United States face and confront and have to negotiate as they are trying to build the lives they want to build. And it has undertones of the Me Too movement. Um, although, like Spark, the, the outline was written long before the current iteration of the Me Too movement, 
but nonetheless, it is there and it did influence the writing. Um, so that is the next thing that is coming out. And so I am working on some, some blogs and some pieces that I will put out in tandem with the novel when that comes out. Well, that sounds already a lot to me. And we, <laughs> <laughs> and, and we are definitely very excited to know that you have more uh, works coming out. And we look forward to have you again sometime soon to talk about your new books. Thank you so much. And thank you for everything. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for joining us. And we really, really enjoyed the conversation with you. Bye-bye. Wonderful to talk with you. Bye.